I look forward to the day when I'm listening to my kids preach. <laughs> Come on. Oh, bless you guys. Thank you. What an amazing demonstration of kindness and love. And like Abby was saying, you know something's going right when you can fly across halfway across the world and step into a building you've never stepped into and it feels just like home. So thank you guys. And it's good to be with you. I bring you greetings from the church in London. Yay! Um, and as you have heard, my name is Tom and I am from London. This is not a speech impediment. This is an English accent. Um, so I bless you guys to keep up. I was telling first service that you guys have been really spoiled with English accents. You've had Kate, you know, the northern English accent. Think warmth. Think of a cuppa around the fire, you know, strong family units. You've had uh, Ian McDermott with his, um, you know, just the charm of that English accent. And I, I just want to apologize in advance because this is what happens when you take all of the warmth and the charm out of the English accent. This is what you're left with. So apologies in advance. Uh, I will do my best to uh, not say anything that is uh, okay to say in England and not okay to say in America. <laughs> There's uh, some cultural differences, I'm sure. Um, but what was worrying to me was I, I was uh, speaking with a church uh, down in Orlando when we were there, when we flew in. And um, instead of saying process without realizing I said process, that was a, that was a concerning moment. I, I, I felt like it was just, Holy Spirit was just blessing me in the moment to just, you know, be all things to all men. And that was just a, a great, you know, so, you know, you hear these stories of people like flying to Moscow and preaching in uh, perfect Russian and not being able to speak a word of Russian. It's kind of like that, but there we go. Well, bless you guys. Um, let's turn to Ephesians 1. If you have your Bibles, we will say to people, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 1. If you don't have your Bibles, we will just assume you've memorized the whole thing. So there we go. Um, Ephesians 1. And I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll get cracking. But I just want to, oh, do you know how blessed you guys are with your leaders? Do you know that? As a house, as a family, I just want to encourage you. We've just been so blessed to be here. And uh, uh, John Bootsma, uh, he may not realize this, but John Bootsma was the first person from Catch the Fire that I ever heard preach. We went on a Ilsom. Uh, we, uh, and I'm going to touch on this later, we were, uh, my wife Abby had, had bumped into a, a movement called Catch the Fire. And um, she was keen to get us on uh, what, what apparently they called a leader school. And um, I, honestly, I was keen not to go because I knew that they did healing of the heart stuff. And I just didn't want to deal with my issues and just being, you know, nice uh, public vulnerability. Um, and, and we went to this, uh, this leader school on a little island uh, off the coast of France called Jersey. Um, and we actually got the wrong church. We actually turned up at the wrong place. So we missed the first session. Uh, and the second session we came in and it was John uh, teaching on the, the father heart. And he was the first ever catch the fire sermon I ever heard and I arrived with a lot of arrogance. I'm a pastor's kid, uh, grew up in the church so obviously I knew everything uh, there was to know and uh, there was nothing these uh, holy rollers were going to teach me. Um, you know the, the shakers and the bakers as I called them. Uh, we used to call them the cereal bar Christians, the fruits, the nuts and the flakes. Um, <laughs> And now I'm one of them. Oh, my gosh. And I, I turned up full of arrogance, full of pride. Um, and John delivered a message about the, the loving father. And he taught out of Luke 15. And I was just completely undone. Uh, and I, I ugly cried on the floor for probably longer than I would care to admit. And just in that moment, just as I met, you know, I knew God was a loving father, but I knew it up here. And uh, that revelation had never taken the longest journey in the world from the head down to the heart. And, you know, I had a lot of, I thought what I had actually was revelation, but actually what I had was a lot of information. Uh, and I went on a journey, and, and, and my hope and my prayer would be for each and every one of you that we move from, you know, revelation without application, you end up with information. 
I, I knew that God was a father, but I'd never applied it to my life. I'd never allowed him to father me. Revelation uh, without application just leads you into information. I had a lot of information about God. But when you have revelation and application, it leads you into transformation and reformation. Uh, and that was that journey I went on. You know, all of us know that we have a father. Does everyone here, put your hand up here if you have a father. Okay, every hand should be up. Unless any of you were the product of some immaculate conception, which would be amazing. But all of us have a father, biologically speaking. But you know there's a big difference between knowing you have a father and being fathered? And that was that journey I went on. And so if you're new here, I just you know, would encourage you, just jump in with both feet. These guys that are leading this, this house and this movement are good guys. They're godly leaders. They're trustworthy people. But just jump in and just allow God to arrest you and to meet you. Like that running father in Luke 15 who doesn't wait for you to get your stuff together and bring yourself home. But while you are a long way off, he runs to you to cover your shame, to envelop you in his arms. And that's a core message of this house and of this movement. And I'm, I'm so grateful for it. So thank you, John. And yeah, so many years ago now. So... Ephesians 1. Let's read together. Let me pray and then we'll get cracking. That's uh, get started in English. Um, So Jesus, we thank you for this time. Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to be together as family, to be together as brothers and sisters because we are sons and daughters of the living God. God, we thank you that we all come from the same family. And God, we just pray for this time and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible. Holy Spirit, would you breathe on this now? God, we thank you that your word is living and it's active It doesn't return to you void or empty. And as you breathe on these scriptures, Holy Spirit, would they become life and breath to us? Jesus, would we look more like you when we leave this place than we did when we walked in? Shape us and mold us and discipline us and lovingly craft us into the image of Christ, we ask. As we open the scriptures, would they come alive, Holy Spirit, that they wouldn't just be words on a page, but they would become life-changing to us, that they they would feed us and they would water us and they would nourish us into the image of Christ. And we thank you for this time. Please bless it. Amen. Okay, Ephesians 1. I think it's going to be up on the screen here as well. I'm just going to uh, read from uh, verse 11. Ephesians 1 verse 11. We'll go down to verse 14. And you know, there are two ways that God describes his relationship with us in the Bible. The first is that of a father to a child. Uh, And the second way is that of a bridegroom to a bride. And those are the two kind of major themes of relationship that God uses to illustrate his relationship with us. And uh, even the word gospel that we have, euangelion, that that word, um, it's a secular word originally. And there were two kind of main ways that word would have been used. The first is to give news. It's often translated good news. But the way this would have been used would have been to give news of the defeat or capture of the enemy. Okay, and who knows, that's the gospel. You know, the enemy's been defeated. The the giants of sin and death have been slain at the hand, the the mighty hand of God. And that's that's the gospel. But I think so often we we miss that we've been saved from death and sin, but we've also been saved to something. And that's the other way euangelion would have been used is to give the news, to proclaim the news of a soon coming wedding. And and there's this song that uh, IHOP used to sing. Um, I used to love it. It it says, there's gonna be a wedding. I I won't sing it because, you know, you guys aren't ready for that. There's going to be a wedding. It's the reason that I'm living, to marry the Lamb. And so often we, we, we celebrate what Jesus has, has saved us from, but we're sometimes not mind, mindful of what God has saved us to. You know, sometimes when we celebrate the cross, I remember speaking a message in London and saying, you know, as Christians, we're called to be more Easter Sunday than we are Good Friday. You know, it's amazing to celebrate the cross, but it's not just what God has saved us from, it's what God has saved us into. What I was teaching was that the cross is not the destination, the cross is the door way that we go through the cross we don't want to forget the cross the cross is essential the cross is the linchpin on which everything hangs every single aspect and nature of God is fully and perfectly expressed through the cross of Christ however 
He's not on the cross anymore. There's another song by IHOP, a bit more of an intense one. He's not a baby uh, in a manger anymore. He's not a broken man on the cross. He didn't stay in the grave and he's not staying in heaven forever. This idea that he's not on the cross anymore. He is resurrected and risen. And there's this, this dynamic we have in the gospel that yes, we've been saved from, but also we are saved too. Ah, in him, verse 11, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. You know, I was saying that the best way to, to get your prayers answered is to pray the will of God. God, what's your will? And then I'll pray it. Verse 12, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Did you know you are for the praise of his glory? Just turn to your neighbor and say, did you know you were created for the praise of his glory? Did you know you, no, 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 you have to say it in an English accent because I'm preaching. Did you know, I say, good fellow, did you know that you were created for the praise of his glory? I turn it on in, in America when I'm ordering in like Starbucks and, and they're like, oh my gosh, I love your accent. I'm like, well, technically we're speaking English, so you're the one with the accent, but let's let it slide, let it slide. Because if I'm going to get like a free coffee or something, then frightfully good work, yes. <laughs> and you also were included in Christ when you heard, faith comes by hearing, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel, okay. Just like I was saying, you and Gellion, when you heard that the enemy had been defeated and captured, and when there, you heard that there is a soon coming wedding, when you heard that, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. That word seal is the same, as, the same idea as cattle being branded. You guys understand branding cattle here, right? You were, you were marked in him at the point when you heard the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him forever, irrevocably marked. We need to be marked by that gospel, it needs to change us. It needs to, it sets us on a whole new course, a whole new destiny. Everything changes at that point, bam, new person. The old has gone, the new has come. You're a new creation in Christ. You're marked with a seal and that is the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Those words, deposit, guaranteeing, uh, in the original is uh, Arabon. And, and the way uh, that word would have been used would, would have been in commerce and, and that kind of thing. And it talks about uh, the, the way this word would be used would be, you know, when someone uh, makes a purchase, they would leave an Arabon. They would leave a deposit. And, and you have a, a you know, similar idea when you buy a car or when you buy a house. You know, you go and buy a car. You go to the dealership. You decide you want the car. You may sign some paperwork. And then typically you would leave a deposit. And what does the deposit do? The deposit says, that which I've committed to, this deposit is here to demonstrate to you and to show you that I intend to complete the purchase, yeah? I've made a commitment and I intend to follow through on that commitment. I intend to make it good. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. But what Paul is saying here is at the point that you get saved, the Holy Spirit not only seals you in him, but he is left as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Another way this word Arabon would have been used is like an engagement ring. It's that picture, remember, the two relationships, God of, of that of a father to a child and that of a bridegroom to a bride, an engagement ring. And think about how an engagement ring works. When I uh, proposed to Abby, we got married very, very young. Uh, we were 19 and 18. I don't know what uh, we were thinking. Um, we often joke, we, we were saying, you know, isn't it strange that no one really warned us against getting married so young? And we met our old youth pastor at an event called New Wine a few years back. And, and we said to him, Andy, we said, isn't it bizarre that, don't you think it's bizarre that we were so young and no one at any point said do you not think you're a bit young to be getting married he said I did 
<laughs> really? You know how sometimes you don't hear what you don't want to hear? Really, Andy, did you? He said, yes, a, a number of times. I had you into my office and said, don't you think you're a bit young to be getting married? And we were like, wow, we just did not hear that at all. <laughs> He who has ears to hear, you know, and by the grace of God, you know, Abby, Abby is not the woman I married and, and thankfully for her that I'm not the man that she married. You know, we've, we've both changed. Who knows, you change a lot kind of in that kind of time. And we got, we, we started dating at 15 and 16. We were childhood sweethearts. Everyone say, ah, ah, can we get a bit more of an ah? Yeah, I know. 15 and 16, I, I think it's laughable when people in our church come to me and say, uh, Pastor Tom, can I have some dating advice? Because honestly, when I was last dating, uh, the way you told a girl you liked her was you pulled her ponytail or you pushed her over in the playground. So just, you know, if you're looking for that kind of dating advice, come see me. But you might want to speak to, you know, Murray, you know, for some more grown up uh, dating advice. But there came that point. <laughs> Were you super young as well? Was anyone here not a child when they got married? If, if they, maybe go and speak to them for some, for some marriage advice. I was just amazed because like probably about six months before I met Abby, I still thought girls had cooties. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing to me. I gave her an engagement ring. Uh, we got married on the first of, uh, got married on the seventh of September. We got engaged on the first of March that same year, um, and I gave her an engagement ring. And that engagement ring was a sign. It was a deposit, guaranteeing my commitment. It, it made uh, it made real my intentions towards her. I um, we were in a restaurant with some friends, and I whispered in her ear because she knew we were. Uh, I was going to be popping the question at some point. Didn't know when, uh, and I kept it a surprise, and I managed to find this ring, uh, and we were in a restaurant with some friends, and I whispered in her ear, I said, baby, what would you do if I asked you to marry me right now? And she was a little bit sassy back then. She was like, oh, I guess I'd have to think about it. I said, well, you've got 30 seconds to think about it because this is happening. And I kicked the chair back and I got down on my knee. I pulled her out and I said, Abby, you would make me the happiest man in the world if you would agree to be my wife. Now, apparently, this is, I, I didn't hear this. Apparently, there was a woman in the restaurant who at that point where they, she saw I was proposing shouted out, don't do it, love. You'll always regret it. Uh, she's very blessed that I didn't hear that because that probably wouldn't have ended well for her. But there was, um, <laughs> there was a, an engagement ring that I gave her. Now, here's the point of an engagement ring. Two, two reasons I wanted Abby to have an engagement ring from me. The first was when she looked down at her ring finger, she still wears it today. When she looked down at her ring finger, what I wanted her to remember was he loves me. He's chosen me. He's made a promise. And one day in the future, that promise will, will come to fruition. When we get married, this promise will become uh, binding before God and before man. She could look at her hand and remember in an instant the promise that had been made to her and the fruition that was going to come of that promise, okay? That was one reason. Would you like to know the second reason? Because I wanted every other guy who looked at her to know that she was spoken for. Holy Spirit is your divine engagement ring. When you look at Holy Spirit, just in that same way, let's take a second now. Just close your eyes. It's all right. I know I'm from London. I'm not going to rob you while your eyes are closed. Close your eyes and just, oh, just welcome the presence of Holy Spirit right now. Holy Spirit, we honor you. We love you. We welcome you. We acknowledge your manifest, tangible presence here with us. We thank you. And here's what Paul is teaching us in Ephesians 1 here. When you look at Holy Spirit, one of the manifestations of his commitment to us is to see him and know that Jesus has made a promise to you as the bridegroom that he's going to come back and make good. Holy Spirit, we thank you for being that divine engagement ring. Here's the other thing. When the enemy looks at you, he sees Holy Spirit on you and he knows you're spoken for. Ah, Holy Spirit, my divine 
engagement ring. Let's go over to Genesis 22. I want to uh, pull a, a theme out. And, and here's the thing about salvation. Here's the thing about the journey of um, going from death into life. And, you know, the Bible speaks about salvation in three tenses. Uh, the Bible says um, you have been saved. It talks about you have been saved. It talks about you are being saved. And it talks about you will be saved. It talks about salvation in three tenses, past, present, and future. Salvation is, is there. You have been saved. At the point that you got saved, everything changes. Uh, salvation is a binary state. It's like pregnant. You cannot be a little bit pregnant. You are either pregnant or you're not pregnant, okay? And salvation is the same. And I believe, uh, I believe scripturally there's a, there's a clear, clear case for at the point that you get saved, your spirit is changed. We're, 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 we're spirit, we're soul, and we're body, okay? I believe salvation at the point that you get saved the point that you recognize that you're a sinner, that you need saving, at the point that you understand that the wages of sin is death and you know that you need rescuing, you know that without the saving work of cross of Christ on the cross, without the cleansing flow of his blood, you come to that revelation that without that, you are lost for eternity without God. And Jesus came and he lived a sinless life and he died on that cross in your place. Uh, the, 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 the theological term for that is substitutionary atonement. Just like a substitute on a football pitch, he came on in your place. You got to come off and he got to come on and he died in your place. It should have been us on that cross. At that point that we realize that, we recognize that, and by faith, we claim that and we receive that for ourselves. We say, by faith, we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died for us. At that point, we're changed. Everything gets flipped. Everything gets changed. You become a new person. That's why Paul said, it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. I am a new creation. The, the old man is gone and the new man has come to life, okay, in Christ, with Christ. That's salvation. That, at that point, you get saved and changed in a moment. But there's a journey we go on. If you think of salvation in the past tense, salvation in the present tense is actually sanctification. And, and that word literally means sanctification. It's being made saint-like. So we have salvation, you have been saved. Sanctification, you are being saved. You're being conformed to the image of Christ. You're being changed and transformed to look more like Jesus, to talk more like Jesus, even to smell more like Jesus, the fragrance of Christ. And then one day, you will be saved. And we call that glorification. One day where, where scripture teaches where the veil is lifted and you see him as he is and every tear will be wiped away. There'll be no more sin. And so think of it like this. Salvation is being set free from the, the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin being death, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death, okay? You've been set free from the penalty of sin. Sanctification here is being set free from the practice of sin. Okay, we, we, although, um, you know, uh, John 3, 6 and 9 talk about, you know, he who is born of God cannot sin because God's seed remains in him. What that means is your nature has changed. At the point that you got saved, you no longer have a sin nature. You're not, you don't have the nature of sin anymore. You have the nature of righteousness. But we're still, we're still catching up with that revelation. Can anyone testify to that? Yeah. If you, need, if you need actual testimony of that, that we're not quite the finished product, just speak to my wife and she will confirm that even though spiritually speaking, I'm perfect with Christ, the rest of me is still catching up with that. I still have my off days occasionally, you know, every now and then. <laughs> Let's not go there. Saved from the penalty of sin, the process of sanctification, the process of being made more Christ-like, being saved from the very practice of sin, but one day, one a glorious day when you either breathe your last breath or he comes on the clouds, whichever of those things happens first. One day, not salvation, not sanctification, but glorification. Not set free from the penalty of sin, not set free from the practice of sin, but set free from the very presence 
of sin. Who's excited for that day? Oh. Here's the problem is that for a lot of us, and, and this is my experience and my journey, and, and I'm working through this, and I'm, I, I'm trying to be more mindful of this. We get saved, and then we just kind of settle into more of a cruise control kind of attitude to, to, to this walk with God. And we look forward with eager anticipation to glorification. But what we forget sometimes is there's a process and a journey to go on called sanctification, which is preparation. Preparation for that returning of the bridegroom. Someone asked Michelangelo once uh, on the topic of sculpting, how do you transform, how do you sculpt that block of granite into the sculpture of the elephant? And he said, well, that's easy. I just chip away all the bits that don't look like an elephant. Apply that to your life. How does Murray get transformed from that block of granite that he was, <laughs> spiritually speaking, long time ago, that block of granite. How, how do we transform Murray from that block of granite into the image of Jesus? Do you know what Holy Spirit says? He says, well, that's easy. We just chip away all the bits that don't look like Jesus. That's sanctification, and that's the journey we're going on now. Here's the great news. That is a Holy Spirit-empowered journey, and I'm going to show that to you. I'm going to, we're going to open the Scriptures and see that heart of God, that the bride be prepared. And you don't, you don't really have to look far. All through Scripture is talking about this bride making herself ready, this bride without spot or blemish. But here, here's the thing. We need to understand that this isn't a works message. This is a grace message. Because so often we get into this mindset that we've got to do the hard work. And somehow, and Paul addressed this. He said, you got saved by grace, but you slipped straight back into works. And, and we like to think in our charismatic churches that we, you know, we, don't, we, don't do, oh, we don't do law. You know, we don't do works. We do grace. But it's so easy to slip back into law. You don't, you don't realize it sometimes. And suddenly you're kind of getting into your own or, or, or we're getting into our own religious practices. They look slightly different. They don't look like the, the legality of the old man, but somehow we get into the, the practice of religion again. We don't realize. Here's the, here's the beauty. It's Holy Spirit who does the sculpting. It's Holy Spirit who reveals Jesus. What's the easiest way to become more like Jesus, scripturally speaking? To look at him. All we with unveiled faces. There's that bride picture again. It's not the groom who wears the veil. I went through so much of my Christian life thinking God was the one who was veiled. He's not veiled. We're veiled. We hid ourselves. Think about Genesis 3, the fall of the man. I was ashamed, so I hid. I, I veiled myself with sin and wrong thinking. And, and there's, there's this heart of God that wants, to, wants us to be unveiled just like that bride so we can see our bridegroom. And as we see him, we're made like him. As we gaze upon his beauty, we're transformed into his image. A friend of mine who was a worship pastor at a church in London, his three statements, his three words for the vision statement for his worship community were boasting, beholding, becoming. When we worship, we boast about God. We declare who he is. That's why there's so much anointing in worship because it's the only place in church we usually agree on everything, right? That's why there's agreement, Matthew 18, where it talks about if you agree on something. That word agreement there is symphoneo. It's where we get our word symphony. It's, it's, it's understanding there's a symphony of praise, but the reason so many healings and miracles and deliverance and transformation happens in worship is because we all agree. We all come to church and for once we're like, we are all in agreement here, right? That Jesus is who he says he is. There's that power in praise and worship and we, we, we come into that place of agreement and we understand that as we, as we come and we agree and we behold Jesus, we see him as he is, we're transformed, we're conformed into his image. Beholding him. You just take a second now and ask Holy Spirit, would you show me Jesus? 
Would you show me something fresh? Would you show me something new? Not because he's changed, but because I've changed. <sighs> Had this picture once that was one of the most profound pictures of my life. Uh, if the London team were here, they'd be laughing because this is my story that I always tell. And I, I felt bad for telling it because people were getting bored of it. And then someone challenged me. They said, if this was the most profound picture you've ever had, you need to tell it. And I was, I was getting ready. We were in pre-service prayer like you guys have here. And I was getting ready to lead worship uh, back in the days when I used to lead worship at Catch the Fire London. And, and, and I had this, uh, this, this mantra I had in worship, which was revelation response. We respond in worship to the revelation of who Jesus is. And so I prayed this prayer. I said, God, I'm not going to go out there and lead worship until you show me something new of you. Show me something new of you. And I, you, know, you know when you know it's a good prayer? You know those prayers? <laughs> Oh, don't pretend you don't know. You know when it's a good prayer, right? You know when you're in the prayer meeting and you wait till it's quiet to pray this prayer because you know it's a good prayer. God, I refuse to go out, you know, pre, you know, arrogant Tom. I refuse to go out there and lead without the fresh revelation. Show me something new of who you are, God. And do you know what he said? He said, nope. And then he left it. It was just like this awkward silence, this like pregnant pause. I feel like God often speaks so much more to me in the silence than in the words. <laughs> nope. And then do you know what he said? There's nothing new to show you. He said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I have no shadow of turning. There's nothing new of me to show you. And then he left it again. <laughs> I thought that was a good prayer, God. There's nothing new. And then he said these words. He said, but I can position you to see something new. And then in that moment, I saw this picture of this giant diamond. Think crown jewels, you know, in the Tower of London. This giant diamond. And, and, and in this picture, it was like an open vision. And I was staring at this beautiful diamond, huge, resplendent with glory, amazing. And I was just in awe of its beauty. You know when you just, for me, to be lost for words is significant, okay? I was just lost for words. I was discombobulated. I was just like, ah, oh, this diamond, so beautiful. And I was just in awe of its beauty, just the, the splendor and the majesty of this diamond and all the lights were shining on it. It was just beautiful. And then in the picture, God picked me up and just moved me here and, and I saw a whole new facet of this diamond. And he said, that, that's what I'm talking about. There's nothing new of me to show you, but I can position you. You know, the cross didn't change God's nature. The cross changed your nature. Yeah? And that's the point. That's the point of sanctification. It's, it's not a vicious cycle. It's a virtuous cycle. Why? Because the more you see, the more you love. And the more the love, the more you get conformed into the image of Christ. But guess what? The more Christ-like you are, the better positioned you are to see more of Christ. It's a slippery slope of glory. It's an, it's an, it's an upward slippery slope, if that's such a thing. You know, physics kind of go out the window when you're in the kingdom, right? It's not, a, it's not a, a, a legality thing. It's not a, I have to get right to see God. I had a Muslim person in, in Costa Coffee once uh, say to me, tell me the difference in a sentence between your religion and my religion. We do a lot of, um, I was sharing in the first service about a, a call I have to, to minister to the Arabic speaking Muslims. She said, tell me the difference between your religion and my religion. And Holy Spirit, you know when Holy Spirit says it better than you could ever say it? What I felt Holy Spirit say to tell her was, your religion tells you, do everything you can and get yourself right, and then you can see God. And my religion tells me that God did everything he could do to get me right so I could see him. We, your religion says, do everything you can so you can get to God. My religion said, God did everything he could do to get to me. 
And that's the, that's the process of sanctification. That's the process of being set free from the practice of sin. You know, one of the best ways to, to, to grow and, and get rid of the sin nature is not to focus on the sin, it's to focus on Jesus. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, let's throw off every, every sin and the stuff that entangles and fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of your faith. The best way in your relationship to not be distracted by other people is to focus on the one you love. The more you fall in love with someone, the more you want to do what makes them happy, the more you want to do what keeps that relationship secure and safe. And so it is with Jesus. The more we fall in love with him, the easier it is to become like him. And the more we become like him, the easier it is to fall in love with him. That virtuous cycle. And it's this dance of intimacy. It's this dance of sanctification. It's not a you thing that you have to do. It's a submission to his process. Genesis 22, I'll just summarize it in the interest of time. Uh, we see this prophetic picture. I love seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And we, we see this picture of Abraham. And Abraham uh, is told by God to, to, to go up and sacrifice his only son. So we have Abraham who in this story is a prophetic picture of God the Father. And we have Isaac who is a prophetic picture of God the Son. And they go up the hill and think about the similarities. Isaac as the son climbing the hill with the wood on his back. Does that remind you of anyone? That picture of Jesus climbing that hill with the wood on his back. And Abraham is tested. You know, testing is one of, the, one of the key things in sanctification, allowing God to test us. We don't like testing generally, do we? Do we? I, don't, I haven't met anyone who's genuinely excited about the idea of testing. Why? Because sometimes it's uncomfortable. But we have to welcome the testing of the Lord. Abraham was tested by God. You know, tests are aimed at your strengths and designed to give you an opportunity to succeed. We shouldn't fear the testing. Why? Because we can trust what's been tested. You can't trust something unless it's been tested. Has anyone here, here ever had surgery of any type? Pop your hand up if you've ever had surgery. I'm having surgery in a few weeks. Surgery, yeah. Now, keep your hand up if you are glad that that surgeon went through some form of testing before they were let loose on you, okay? You can't trust what hasn't been tested. I flew here in a plane, and I am very glad that that plane underwent some sort of testing before I was allowed to fly in it. Equally, I'm very glad that the pilot didn't just turn up and be like, yeah, pretty good on the flight sim, let me add it. He had to go through a, a sense of testing and a, a process of testing. Matt and Kate, when they were here last time, were delayed in their flight on the way back. She phoned me up. She said, Tom, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to be back at work. I said, oh, no, what happened? She's like, they found a crack in the, uh, the wing on our plane. Huh. <laughs> That's the kind of thing you want to know when you're on the ground, right? You know, and, and who knows that they were glad that they tested the plane. To, and, and the purpose of testing is to understand and to ascertain, is something fit for, for the purpose for which it was created? When it says in Romans, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the perfect and pleasing will of God. Testing is about understanding, is something fit for the purpose for which it was created? Just in the same way that a carpenter would test a chair by sitting on it, you have to understand that there is testing you go through to check that you are fit for the purpose for which you were created. What was the purpose for which you were created? To be the bride of Christ. And so we welcome that testing. Why? Because it shows us that we are being conformed and transformed into the image of Christ so that he may get the full reward for his suffering. Not only the nations as his inheritance, but the bride without spot or blemish. Can you imagine 
I was sharing this in the first service. Think about the bride. You know, you've got the, the weddings that you do here and you've got the bridegroom waiting here. And can you imagine if the bride just decided after the, the proposal and they go through the season to not do any kind of preparation, no kind of, you know, any preparation at all and just to rock up to church just without any preparation. She just turns up in her sweatpants, in a vest with, you know, last night's takeaway, kind of just, you know, stained and hair all crazy, you know, more lipstick on her teeth than she's got on her lips, you know, no effort made at all to beautify herself, no effort made at all to even understand the gravity of that which she was about to go through, not, oh, I have to take vows, I didn't really think about that, I didn't, I'm not really, I'm not prepared at all, I, I, I have understood nothing about the solemnity and the sobriety and the gravity of that which I'm about to do, and hear me, it's not about looking good, okay, Sometimes we're really happy to look good and not actually be good. It's not about looking good. But in that picture of the bride preparing herself, what she is showing and demonstrating is that she understands the magnitude of what's happening. But she so loves that bridegroom that she wants to make herself as ready as possible to convey the love that she has for that bridegroom by preparing herself in such a way that she has no spot or blemish. It's not about looks. It's not about beauty. It's about understanding the state of our hearts. And it's a Holy Spirit-empowered act. And so here we see Abraham and Isaac up the mountain. And then they come down and we move forward from Genesis 23 over to Genesis 24. And then a very interesting story happens. Abraham, who's God the father, takes his senior servant and he says, go and find a bride for my son, for my beloved son. So remember, Abraham is who? God the father. Isaac is who? God the son. And he's saying, for my son, go and find a bride. Go and find a bride. Not from the Canaanites. Now, the Canaanites represent godlessness and idolatry. Don't find a wife for my son from the Canaanites, but from my own family. Did you know God the father is looking for a bride for his son, not from the Canaanites, not from the godless idolaters, but from God's own family? Who's God's own family? You and me, baby. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father in heaven from whom the whole of heaven and earth derives its name. We are God's children. We are chosen and adopted as his sons and daughters. That's the bride that he's sending this servant to look for. And, and then we see this story go on. The servant goes and he takes the camels, 10 camels, and 10 represents a, a legal kind of gathering in, in, in the Jewish mindset. And, and he, he, he sets this sign. He lays down the fleece. He says, the one who waters the camels, Lord, let her be the one. And so Rebecca comes out and she says, I will water those camels. And interesting side point, you never know whose camels you're watering. Did you know that? You know the very camels that she watered became her own camels? You know, sometimes you think that you're serving someone else's vision and it later becomes your vision. You never know whose camels you're watering. He comes with gifts. And the story goes on. And, and just in the interest of time, I'm going to summarize it. There's just so much richness there. But he, he, he realizes that she's the one. God's made it clear. It's a supernatural sign. And, 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 and she's the one. And, and in, in these kind of cultures, when the proposal was made, the groom would then go and, and prepare the house, the, the physical house for the arrival of the bride. And we see that, don't we, with Jesus. He says, I go now to prepare a place for you. And one day he's returning on the clouds, probably over Wembley. He's returning on the clouds. And... And every eye will see and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is God and, and he will be the victorious king, but he will be that bridegroom coming back for his bride who has made herself ready, has prepared herself, has sanctified herself and, and consecrated herself and gone through this process of preparation, not from a legal perspective, not preparing ourselves so that he will choose us, but preparing ourselves because he's already chosen us. 
One of the key messages I received from Catch the Fire when I first joined was we don't work for the affection of God, we work from the affection of God. You know, legality says I do, therefore I am, but grace says I am, therefore I do. Not saying I have to get myself ready so that God will accept me and choose me, but saying because God has accepted me and chosen me, it's my joy and my delight and my very great reward and privilege to prepare myself the best way I can. That process of sanctification, that process of having all the bits that don't look like Jesus chipped off us. Why? So that he comes back for his bride without spot and without blemish. And right down in verse 58, they, the, the, the servant says to the, the brother and the mother, this is what's happening. You know, God has made Abraham very rich. He's left it all to his son Isaac as the inheritance. And, and, and he wants her to be his bride. And then there's this question that gets asked in verse 58. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? And what's her response? I will go. I will go. And in that point, she makes the decision to commit to this journey and this process of being prepared as a bride. There's a story I heard of, uh, you know, it's kind of one of these wives' tales of, you know, how a, a dowry is offered for the, for the purchase of the bride. And, um, you know, there was a, a girl in this village who was, uh, was, was not regarded by anyone of, of being beautiful at all. And she knew it. And she had the shame and she had the, you know, the, she wore the... Um, the, the accusations and the opinions of people like that stigma. She knew she wasn't beautiful. She knew that she wasn't destined to be uh, chosen by a worthy suitor. And one day this rich prince comes into the village. Uh, and, you know, in, in terms of her worth, she understood that, you know, most girls would be worth 10 camels, but she was really only a one camel girl. Uh, and the, the rich suitor comes into the village and, and he's looking for his bride and he sees her and he says, I, I want you, I choose you, and I'm prepared to pay the dowry of 100 camels. <gasps> The gas goes out, surely not for this girl. Look at her, she's ugly, she's nothing to behold. She holds herself in shame and affliction. She's, she's, not, she's not even a 10 camel girl. She's not even a five camel girl. She's a one camel girl and he's paying 100 camels for her. Scandal in the community. And so the suitor goes away to prepare the place and that day he comes back looking for his bride. And this woman comes out a radiant vision of beauty. Why? Because she understood that she was worth 100 camels to that guy. And her countenance had changed to fill that which she thought she was worth because he told her, you know, the only person who has the authority to tell you what you're worth is the one who created you. Wow. Cost determines value. My uncle is an antiques collector. I'm praying and hoping that he's got some Fabergé egg ready for me, but he's an antiques collector. He has trained himself to see what people don't see. That even though something may look dirty and dusty and is hidden in a box of other bits of knick-knack and, and rubbish, he's trained his eye to spot that which has value. And he will pay over the odds for it. Why? Because he understands it's like the pearl of great price. He understands he sees the value. Cost determines value. How could we ever have lack of self-worth and issues with self-image when we truly have a revelation of what we are worth because of what someone was prepared to pay for us? Jesus was prepared to pay with his very life. God was prepared to offer his only son as the purchase price for you, not for the person next to you, for you. And that's one of the greatest antidotes to a lack of self-worth is to understand that your worth comes from what someone was prepared to pay for. You are worth the very lifeblood of the only begotten son of God. So right now we serve notice to any issues of self-image. And if that's you, I won't have you stand, but I just felt like I just wanted to minister to that right now. If you're struggling with a lack of worth, if you are struggling, if people your life uh, through have told you that you're worth nothing, 
That's just a lie from the pit of hell. You know, the enemy will try and tell us what we're not. But we need to listen to the voice of God who tells us who we are in him. You know, when the devil tried to tempt Eve, he said, if you eat that apple, you'll be like God. That was a lie. She already was like God. You are just like God. You bear his image. And so if that's you, I just, I just release now just a, a fresh grace to see yourself as God sees you. Why? Because your life is hidden in Christ and you're one with God. And so we just serve notice on any shame, any lack of self-worth, any self-image issues, because you need to understand that you're worth exactly what someone's prepared to pay for you. And the truth is that God paid the highest price just for you, that dowry, that purchase price. And you can hold your head high like a hundred camel girl. <laughs> Go find a bride from my own people. Will you go with this man? I will go, she said. Each step on this journey of sanctification gives validity and it gives honor and it gives glory to the image we have of Jesus. When we truly understand just how worthy he is, we would do everything, not within our own power, but everything within Holy Spirit's power. And that's the good news. Will you go with this man? Will you go with this man? Will you go with this man? I will go. God takes your weak yes. Your I will go may feel very weak. Why? Because we know ourselves. Why? Because we know the issues we have. Why? Because we know perfectly well all the great and many, many ways that we don't yet look like Jesus. And we feel like what we have to offer isn't worth him. We feel like what we have to give. And the truth is it really isn't. We couldn't give anything that is worth him. Yet he receives our praise, he receives our adoration, he receives our ministry, he receives our, our worship. But it's Holy Spirit who takes us on that journey. It's Holy Spirit who lovingly chips away every single bit of us that doesn't yet look like Jesus. Until that great and glorious day where he comes riding on the clouds and every eye sees and he says, I receive you as my bride. And we say we've made ourselves ready. We've done everything in Holy Spirit's power to prepare ourselves. We've sanctified ourselves. We've consecrated ourselves, not because we want to earn your affection, but because we already have it. Jesus, I want to make myself ready. And every single bit of me that doesn't yet look like Jesus, I want it to be stripped away. I want it to be cut away and broken away in any which way. So I want to invite you, I, I, I want to be really careful with this kind of message because it's so easy to respond in a moment. And I'm not looking for a response, I'm looking for results. And it would be my greatest joy to hear that this message has spurred you on and encouraged you to recommit to that journey of sanctification. It's not a competition, it's a, it's a joy and it's a delight. If it feels like hard work, you're probably not doing it in Holy Spirit's power and grace. And that's the point, but church, this is... This is the call. This is, this is it. This is what it's all about. It's about making ourselves ready. You know, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. But that's the heart I want to have with sanctification, for the joy set before me of being received as the bride. To be able to look Jesus in the face and said, I did everything I could to make myself ready. I didn't, it wasn't work. It wasn't, it wasn't a, le a legality thing. It wasn't a law thing. It was my greatest joy to allow you to show me the areas of me that need to be changed. And just even recently, I went through a, a process of sanctification. I went through a process of testing. And some stuff had to be revealed to me. Some stuff had to be pointed out to me. And it wasn't a great moral sin or anything like that. It, it was actually arrogance. 
It was actually a, an area of my life where, and, and the irony was, people would say one of the things I walk in is humility. It seems odd saying that myself, but people would say that. Oh, yeah, Tom's a really humble guy, but there was some arrogance in my heart that was holding me back from my destiny. And some people I love really dearly had to point that out to me. And I was uncomfortable. That hurt. It was difficult. I took a little step back from preaching for a while, and I just had to get my heart right and be humble. Do you know, we will be humbled. We just have the choice of the, the process. We humble ourselves or God humbles us. Please learn from my experience. Learn from my mistakes. Humble yourself. It's much more comfortable than being humbled. But that's the call on all of our lives is to be ready to prepare ourselves. And so I want to invite you just, I want to invite you to not come up straight away. And maybe, Ian, if you're around and you could play for us. But what I felt was that there was a, a, there was a grace on us today to recommit to that journey to recommit to that process, you know, to, to walk on that journey. It's really hard to steer a ship when it's not moving. And, you know, sometimes our job is to take the, the step and God will, will order it and God will, 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 will point us where we need to be. But for all of us, there's an invitation today. You know, transformation comes through invitation. God invites us into that place, into that process. And if we can, all we have to do is give him the weak yes. God, I don't know how that's going to work. I don't know what that looks like. But Jesus, I want to be like you. I want to look like you. And Holy Spirit, would you help me? You know, that senior servant in Genesis 24, it doesn't tell us there his name, but it says in Genesis 15 that the senior servant is Eliezer. El, meaning God from Elohim, and Azar meaning helper. God, the helper. Just like Holy Spirit, Jesus says, I will send you another helper. It is the great delight and joy of Holy Spirit to show us Jesus and to allow us to be like him, to take us on that journey. And so that's the invitation this morning. We're, gonna, we're not going for the, the big hype or anything like that. This is, a, this is between you and God. And my, my encouragement to you would be to take a moment and just get right with God and just get your heart into a, a, a place of humility. And it's humility that leads to exaltation. You know, Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God, as something to be grasped, but chose to humble himself, even to the point of death. And this is what we're doing. We're dying to ourselves. We're putting that old man back on that cross like we have to every day. And therefore, God gave him the name that is above every other name. And, and that process of being exalted and, and being uh, brought into unity with Christ, it comes through the door of humility. But I don't want to do it for any legal reason. I want to do it because I want Jesus to get his full reward for his suffering. Yes, the nations is his inheritance, but the bride without spot or blemish. And so we're just going to leave this space free and the ministry team are going are to bless you and minister to you. But really this is between you and God. This is about coming back to that place of saying, I want to be like you, Jesus, but I recognize that it's you, Holy Spirit, that's going to lead me on that journey. Church, will you go with this man? I will go. I don't know how. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't have it in me. Well, that's great. You don't have it in you, but you are in him. So as and when you're ready, just come and respond. And let's just let this be a holy moment where we recommit, where we consecrate ourselves to that journey of sanctification. Thank you, Jesus.
Holy Spirit, we welcome your leading. We recommit again to a journey and a process of beholding you, Jesus. And as we see you, we are made more like you.